You're listening to Cinepunked. This episode, Burn All Books. Hello, I'm your host, Robert J.E. Simpson. Who is to say what we should and shouldn't read? Should we ban books? Which books would you like to eradicate? Inspired by Ray Bradbury's novel and the Francois Truffaut film adaptation of Fahrenheit 451, in this episode, the Cinepunk team explores issues of censorship on screen and in literature. Recorded in front of a small live audience in the surroundings of the Babel rooftop bar at Bill at Belfast, this conversation played out as part of the 2019 Belfast Book Festival. As the discussion makes clear, there was an interactive element to proceedings which was met with some resistance. Cinepunk's goal is to facilitate discussion and to prompt thinking, and for our censorship conversation, we followed our talk with a book burning. That's right, a book burning. Book burnings themselves have long been associated with oppressive ideologies, states attempting to control their populations, religious fundamentalists attempting to eradicate the faith and teaching of others. The Chinese rulers did it. Chairman Mao bragged about not just getting rid of the books, but the scholars who wrote them too. Hitler's regime attempted to erase any trace of Jewish writing, and more recently we've had ministers leading burnings of Harry Potter books because of their possible occult influence. Book burnings are not new by any stretch, but most of the time they are utilised as a negative force. Our book burning was to be a creative act, and a direct engagement with both Bradbury's novel and the implications of censorship. The following audio is an unedited recording of our censorship debate, warts and all. Please enjoy. So yes, thanks for coming out on this absolutely horrible evening. I know there's not many of you, but hopefully you will enjoy the content nonetheless. Um, presumably everyone else has taken one look outside, gone, saw that, I'm way home. Um, which It's always bad form to have a book burning in the middle of a hurricane. You know, it's uh, <laughs> no one likes that. Summer! <laughs> it's somewhere in Northern Ireland. <laughs> it's beautiful. So... Uh, we're Sunnypunked, um, and I suppose I should do the introductions. Uh, so uh, I'm Robert J. Simpson, uh, my colleague at the far end, Dr. Rachel Kelly. Hello. And then we have got two guests with us tonight. To my left, Neil Sedgwick. Hello. Uh, no stranger to us. He's a film critic, formerly of Films and Faith. Yeah. You've been on one or two of our podcasts. Yeah. And then we have a cinematic, a Sunnypunked virgin. <laughs> Mr. That's beautiful. Mr. Stephen Rainey. Uh, BBC producer and uh, presenter and broadcaster type person. I just do whatever they tell me. <laughs> and I do it well, damn it. <laughs> so one of the things, uh, so tonight we're going to uh, basically uh, take Fahrenheit 451, Ray Bradbury's science fiction novel, as our starting point, And we're going to talk about censorship on f- screen and in literary form. But certainly my experience of the last couple of months when I've been talking to people about this event uh, has been one of shock and awe any time I mention the idea of doing a book burning. Um, so I feel before we even get into any of this part of the thing at the end of this tonight, we're going to have a ceremonial book burning. If you have brought a book and you wish to burn it, you're more than welcome to add it to the flames. Uh, we each will be choosing something and putting it into the fire ourselves. But in our defense, each of us is involved in some way, shape or form with book publishing, um, which I think is important because yeah. we're not well, just burning books for the crack. We're not. And we, we're not. We're, I, I sort of, with my book burning, I want to make the point that book burning does not have to be an act of desecration. It doesn't have to be an act of violence. Um, my book burning is actually an act of love. I'm trying to get past how much I love this book and how devastating I find it emotionally. So for me, it's an act of catharsis um, rather than an act of censorship. Whereas I just love burning stuff for the crack. It's well, it's great fun, you know. Stuff. <laughs> what more do you want? Just chucking stuff in a bonfire. It's a Northern Irish tradition. 
This is true. We, d- we did talk about this at one point, actually, <laughs> going to one of the bonfire sites and seeing if we could get the local community involved. Um, outreach. <laughs> Neil, any thoughts about this before we even get around to this? Yeah, mine's not going to be like... My, mine's also going to be in kind of Rachel's vein of a bit of um, slightly sacrificial, um, slightly funeral funeralistic to, to burn part of me away. Um, and then also with Stephen, just to burn something for the crack. <laughs> you don't always get the chance to I burn know. stuff. This I is know, great. You know? I'm starting to feel I'm the only one who's taken this absolutely seriously. <laughs> I've brought a selection of books to burn. Um, so we should have brought uh, a bunch of them. So uh, just a couple of notes as well. We are recording this. This will eventually come out on our podcast, All Being Well. Um, so crew, uh, basically keep the microphones nice and tight to your mouths and we should be good. Get a nice clean recording. At some point, we will open this up to the floor as well. You're more than welcome to jump in with questions, comments, etc., cetera, et cetera. Uh, We have a mic that will stretch and you can become part of our show as well, which we always encourage. He says encourage. What he means is if you don't participate, he's going to walk up and put a mic in your face. <laughs> so you might just prepare yourselves now. Looking down won't save you. <laughs> no, he likes that. <laughs> I, 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 horrible. Um, so, Ray, let's start with Bradbury's four Fahrenheit 451 and the Truffaut adaptation in 1966. Um, we've all seen it? Yes. We, we've all read it? Yeah. No. No. I cheated. I watched the movie. <laughs> oh, man. No, you got to w- read the book. I watched the, the movie. Book. I cheated. Sorry. I know. I'm going to be that person that goes, well, the, the movie was not a patch on the book. And I'm talking about a movie that was made by Francois Truffaut, not a patch on the book. I did, for, for bonus points, watch an interview with Ray Bradbury, though, talking about <laughs> the book that he wrote about the film. So Redeemed. Yes. Um, audience members, have you seen the film or read the book? Yes, maybe. Some have, some haven't. Okay. Um, Those are non-committal <laughs> answers there, I'm just saying. There'll be a short test in a moment. So, Bradbury's novel, um, written in 19, early 1950s and then adapted by Truffaut in 1966. He rather egotistically says that he wrote the first draft of it in nine days, which is quite spectacular wow. when you think about it, but it is no, only no, a 50,000 no, 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 word no. book. He wrote the first novella in, in, in nine days, 25,000 words, okay? I just I feel like my, my artistic writerly pride demands <laughs> that I say we're not talking 100,000 words, okay? 25,000 mm. words, we could all do that. Um, but what Bradbury does is Bradbury envisages, envisages can't say that today, uh, envisions a world in which books are banned. Uh, Fahrenheit 451 is the temperature at which paper burns, uh, and that's where the, the title comes from. Um, this idea of, of banning books is, is something that I think is quite terrifying in many respects. Um, I mean, when I, when I say book burning and when I say banning books, I mean, what do you think of, Neil? Well, when you first asked me to do this, my, my instant reaction, reaction was, what? was like, <laughs> and then the second, the follow-up question to that noise was, um, you mean like the Nazis and stuff? Like, and kind of the Klan. And then recently, then after we discussed this, there was a Polish priest who burnt a lot of Harry Potter books. Um, if anybody saw that story, um, because of the content of them and his feelings towards that, he since apologized and kind of renounced that act, but um, it was kind of timely after that. But yeah, it, it feels like um, the imagery of it is something uh, of censorship, of, of banning, of taking away from people rather than what, what we kind of hope to do later in a kind of emotional, funeralistic sense, I suppose. 
Stephen? It's a hugely uncomfortable feeling. When you first approached me to say, we're, we're talking about Fahrenheit 451, we're going to talk about burning books, my initial reaction was one of absolute horror. The idea that you would burn a book is just anathema to me on every single level. But of course I was intrigued as well. And it's funny, I, completely independently of all this, I was thinking about something fairly recently uh, after a book I was reading kind of planted an idea in my head that, that the written word is us, it's our history, it's our shared experience, it's our thoughts on the page. It's the only way of preserving, in a sense, what we are. And to burn a book, to put it into the fire, to cleanse it off the face of the earth, is to, to erase someone's humanity completely, uh, which makes it incredibly enticing to do as well. Uh, but as you say, the first thing that came into my head was the Nazis and that kind of, yeah. the, the oppression of thought, the idea that uh, the, the, the idea that ideas are scary and that, that, that a book is the perfect repository of ideas. You can take the internet, you can take anything else, uh, the, uh, narrative history, all of that. A book is the definitive article. And to put that into the flames is a, is a heinous thing to do. See, that instinct of horror, that instinct of anger is excellent. That's fantastic. And I think that is why it's so important to do something like this, to provoke that instinctive reaction, to say, you know, well, okay, that's good. De like live with that, sit with that, uh, feel that. Because the the scariest thing for me is that in many ways, Bradbury's future is already here. Um, we may not necessarily have systematically wiped out all the literature on the, the face of the earth, but the, the ideas that feed into that dystopian society are already here. The, the short attention span, the retraining people to live in sound bites, the, the, the nature of the internet that, that sort of hits those reward buttons that, that get us to want smaller and smaller information bites and the control of information. We're we're there, do you know? Because we're living in a world right now where what the information that we're given is given to us. Yes. It's filtered to us in bits and pieces that we can easily absorb as opposed to going out there and finding and discovering on an intuitive level for ourselves. Yes. And that's, that's book burning in a way. And very much we unproblematically accept what we're given. We are siloed in our little sort of information caves where the information flows to us that makes us feel comfortable. I mean, that's the absolute conditions for Fahrenheit 451 to happen. Growing up, I, I grew up in quite a conservative, religiously conservative household. Neil and I have talked about this on your, on yeah. your podcast. Yeah. <laughs> Former podcast Films of Fifth. Um, so we, we've talked about this before, but uh, growing up in a conservative household, uh, my father in his 20s burnt all his records as an act of kind of uh, obedience to the church that he was part of. And so this idea that, you know, you burn a book or that you burn a record or whatever form of media um, is something that... I'm aware of, but for me, it's always been aligned with some sort of religious control, right. uh, ideologies that are trying to perpetuate and try and remove anything else, which I guess is exactly what the Nazis did as well. I mean, they are trying to remove any trace of, of anybody else's thinking that doesn't align with their their notions of what should and shouldn't be. Um, so it's a deeply uncomfortable and, and, and very, very strange strange act to be encouraging uh, as something I... I you know, I mean, I think they regret my father burning his record collection. Um, but there is also something about this, and I, I think I said this to all you guys when I pitched this to you. Um, we treat other forms of media as disposable. So, you know, you're, you're doing shows all about music, Stephen, you know, but this idea that the record itself isn't always something that we sustain. You know, we, we swap it for something else. Records get burnt. Uh, if No one... Very few people are quite happy to sit on a massive collection of VHS tapes. <laughs> they just take up space and they're ugly looking, let's be honest. 
But with records, I mean, music by its very nature can be frequently totally disposable. That's almost part of it. You pick it up, you listen to it, you move on. It stays in your head. That's fine. But I think there's something in the act of, of burning. We're, we're not smashing these up with hammers. We're not burying them. We're not crushing them, whatever. We're burning them. Mm. That the religious iconography of burning as well it's 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 kind of terrifying where it's a cleansing act i think it's to t- it's to take the words on the page and scar them off the face of the earth we're gone they're never coming back and that is terrifying to me i think it, it, i think part of it for me is it goes even further because i think what we do with books is we have a reverence about them that that we don't have with something else um I mean, there's a few people in this room that I know, and I've spoken to about this. And anytime I mention it, you know, there's a <gasps> we're burning a book. I think Rachel was very, very upset with me whenever <laughs> I suggested this. I don't think "upset" was the word. Disturbed. But, um, <laughs> I, I thought we're going to get letters, Robert. Um, we did not surprisingly. We have not got no. letters yet. Um, we haven't burnt the books yet, Robert. But there, there, there is this thing. We, I think we we treat books as sacred texts, essentially. These are something that, we, you know, as you say, it's the definitive article. We can't actually go and uh, we're not allowed to do anything with this. To destroy it is, is and it, there's a line in, the, in, in Fahrenheit 451. Montag talks about this, about the fact that there's a man behind this. This is the, the sum of, you know, of, of a, person's, a, a person's soul is basically within this book. Yeah. Why is it that we treat books with such respect and, and put them on this pedestal? My, my granny um, told me once, just to, to go back into my background, my granny told me once, never throw a Bible out. And I, I don't know why, right? But I now have, like, <laughs> Bibles from when I was a kid, from when I was a teenager, from when I... Da- like, and I can't... Every time I go to clear a shelf, I'm like, I should really just whittle that down. And then I'm, I just hear my granny go, you can't throw that out now. That's... Like, I mean, I'm not religious. And I don't think I'd be able to do that. I don't think I'd be able to throw a Bible out. Surely that would... Yeah, would I not get like struck down or something? Would that? I well, we, we we did have a conversation about this in order to, to to do this event itself, and I mean the act of putting a bible or something into the flames yeah. would have been a temptation, perhaps. Yeah. Although, because one of the, one of the things that I I uh, had thought about burning was a book from uh, kind of my past, like written by um, like a theologian who I probably have no agreement with anymore as well but that's part of my journey but then when it came to the bit i was like i can't actually burn that because that is that is part of my story um and also that's part of potentially somebody else's story and i don't want to dump on that do you know i don't want to do that in the face of somebody else um to do that so i've went for a very like low bar option to burn later we'll get that later well, I, I don't know, just to, to come back to the idea of why books more so than any other form of media um, would be considered horrific to destroy. Um, I, I mean, I think writing represents the emergence of civilization. Writing is very much when it stopped being about um, sort of uh, oral traditions and oral oral storytelling. It became about recording um, and and um, sort of historiography and the idea of putting down words that stay, uh, and I mean it's it's bound up with all of these things that make us human in a way that other forms of cultural expression. I mean, music, yes, fair enough. Music and dance, they all um, tie into that sort of emergence from whatever we were before we were sort of thinking cultural beings. Um, but books stay. 
books record books are permanent in a way that dance and music just aren't so by erasing those you're uh, you're committing an act of violence against that part of humanity that wants to that the urge to record um which you know music is is repressed dance is repressed um but where, where books are destroyed, you've lost something that can't be recovered. Because we could be talking about the cave paintings and, uh, and the, the, the knowledge that mm -hmm. we can glean from that. And they're, of course, very profound and very important. But the emergence of the written word, of people telling their stories, mm -hmm. of, of actually taking part in the act of recording their yes. stories, yeah. is such an, a hugely important part of our, of our history. And I think that when you erase that, you're actually destroying history. You're destroying something you that we can't get back. Yeah. We can't take it back. Yeah. I mean, we talk about recorded history and before recorded history. Yeah. I mean, there's a paradigm moment where we started making sure that we didn't forget stuff. And the way we make sure that we don't forget stuff is because we put it on paper and it stays to whatever extent that it, it, it's, yeah, it's preserved. That's what makes us human. I think that's that to me, that's the moment where we become self-aware enough that we need to record our history. By the same token, yes, of course, art and music and sculpture or anything like that can be important to preserving our history too. But I just think if you fast forward 10,000 years into our own future, a copy of something like, I don't know, Ulysses by James Joyce will be of so much importance, of importance where perhaps a, you know, tape cassette of Abba, Abba Gold maybe quite doesn't have the same resonance. Yeah, and, and as well, I mean, the, the sort of the technology of, of recording sound and recording yeah, voice, it, it changes it, yeah. yes, but whereas the, the technology of recording words on a page, I mean, we're still really using that, that, that same much. technique since the The, the, the papyrus has got better. The papyrus you know? got better, yes. The, the means of preserving it got a little bit more efficient, but... But is there not an issue with that as well, that when you think about the written word, the written word is understandable by those of you who speak the same language. It's, it's actually quite a limited medium, and it does language evolves over over time a thousand years ago you know we, we things like anglo-saxon um and most of us now if we were to look back at an anglo-saxon text the best text in the world ever we're not going to understand them no uh, but but uh, i mean would you talk about the rosetta stone and, and the way that opened up egyptian hieroglyphs i mean there are ways of re-accessing um uh information that where the 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 means of communicating it has been lost, um, but the, the information is still there. Well, we come from, I mean, we're primarily a film organization. So I mean, for, for us, film, I think the argument is always that film is a universal language. It's something that people can understand. It's a visual medium. Um, and whilst it does have those elements of literature and everything else around it as well, the, the, there's something about the, the, the visual, particularly if you look at silent movies, uh, that travels in a much better way than this is going to do. But I think to pick up on what you're saying, though, that with the visual medium, with film, as you were saying earlier, no one wants to preserve those old VHS cassettes, and we could have tremendously important archive on VHS cassettes. I know maybe <laughs> I know someone <laughs> who wants to preserve them. They may I, be here. I own a VHS with, at home, know, which th is that's the only way important. it exists. The only f the only copy but of that I film in the world is now recorded I on guess VHS. This is this is what I worry about. That you know we might have the. Uh, you know, footage of who assassinated JFK, but it's only on Laserdisc. And if you don't have a Laserdisc <laughs> player, then you're screwed, you know? Whereas the printed word, you can't argue with it. It's there. It's not going anywhere. I mean, the idea, even if we go back to, once again, the religious iconography, the idea of the Ten Commandments etched in stone, mm. the, the most permanent form of book yeah. ever, here we go. It's still the written word. And I think that that aspect of destroying that, of eradicating that, comes back to that this, this almost kind of uh, primal idea of destroying something that can't be brought back, that has nothing to do with technology, has nothing to do with the medium, it has to do with the meaning of the word. Well, let's, let's move this on a little bit from, from actually just the act of destruction to, to the idea of censorship, which is ultimately what this is. Um, 
or at least it's how it's perceived. I mean, the act of burning a book or any of this recorded media isn't generally as a, as a quick disposal tool. It's, it, we're thinking of it in terms of an actual act that is making a wider statement. So, and, and that statement is about censorship of one form or another. Who should say, and, and, and well, I suppose first thing first is, should we censor anything? Uh, and this is talk about literature, but film. I mean, the simple yes or no. Should we censor, Neil? I made that noise again. I you just d- you went, did. Uh, Kept the microphone far away from his mouth, so I'd have to dub him in afterwards. Um, should we censor? My, oh man, that is such a hard question. My gut, my gut reaction is no. I think, for me, everything has to be uh, out there and available, and it is your choice if you wish to access it. I don't think. I don't think. In some ways, when you censor something and you put a prohibition on it, it actually makes it more appealing. So, like, we had a conversation about The Exorcist and the fact that when we were younger, you couldn't watch it, you couldn't get a hold of it, it wasn't allowed. And that gave it such, like, a, uh, an appeal on VHS. I, mean, I, I couldn't wait to watch <laughs> The Exorcist. Yeah, exactly, because when somebody tells you you can't Still have never something, there's automatically more of an attraction to it. So, when somebody says, oh, you shouldn't read that, I'm like... Well, why not? <laughs> why shouldn't I? Why shouldn't I have a look at that and take that in and see what I can learn from it and and equally what I can bin from it and go, nope, that's not for me. I don't think that's, I don't think that's where we go. Um, thank you. Good night. No, so no, no, I don't think I don't think so. Rachel. Well, I mean, my my gut instinct is to to say similar um, that censorship. Um, doesn't feel like a particularly sort of positive or in any way benign concept. But then the other part of me goes, well, we have laws, we have restrictions, we have things that can't be done. Um, I mean, if, if we have things that are not allowed, then surely we have, we, we have to um, restrict things that can be seen or read. Um, the question then becomes on what grounds does that take place and who gets to say what grounds those because I mean it's the exact same uh, hesitation that, I, that you have Neil is that when we did this this conversation uh, a few months ago when we were talking about the line between art and pornography um, the conversation arose uh, that um, in other parts of the world pornography is much less taboo um, than it is in in the UK and in America and in, in other countries like that um, and it allows for a healthier uh, engagement with sex and sexuality amongst young people um, because by making pornography something that has to be censored and something from which we have to protect young people, we're effectively saying that sex itself is taboo. You shouldn't be watching that because that's not for you. Well, if that's the only place that you can get it then is, is online pornography, which God knows is not a particularly healthy um, expression. I'm not trying to kink shame anybody at all, <laughs> but that's not a realistic depiction of how sexual relations happen in most um, committed relationships. Um, the expectations and the, the studies that are, are being done showing that young men have these expectations of sex and sexual relationships these days that are based, rooted in what they've seen in online pornography, which is just deeply unhealthy and unrealistic. And part of that is stems from making sex and sexuality taboo. So censoring that and calling it, you I mean, it's only taboo because it's taboo. 
Who makes that determination? W would that be more uh, accessible, I suppose? I mean, because the, the access to that is not restricted, so it's not strictly not censored yet, but at the there, moment. There, is going to, there are laws coming in um, uh, about sort of making you prove it's, that it's you're 18. It's such a tricky thing yeah, for me because exactly. you, 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 we're talking yeah. about that uh, an idea that... Uh, it's creating unrealistic, unrealistic expectations for people. It's giving them ideas that are not based on any kind of reality whatsoever. And then reality is suffering because of that. But we're not at the moment saying, you can't see this. If anything, it's never been easier to see it. And I kind of wonder, has that freedom to access that stuff created? I mean, the, the lack of censorship in a way yeah. has opened the door for a, a kind of expectation that's not practical. Well, it's opened that door because that's the only point of access. Um, if the door was open to, to sort of seeing other representations of sex within you know, a loving, committed relationship, then, and it was easy and it was accessible and it was expected that you would watch stuff like this. I mean, the guy was talking about um, a, a family he stayed with in, with in either Holland or Belgium, um, where he went downstairs and, you know, this 12 year old was watching a fairly graphic depiction of sex on television with his parents and he was horrified. Um, and the, the guy was completely confused by why would this be a problem? And you know that thing, you know, you know the thing where you're a teenager and you're watching a film all innocence and the sex scene comes on and you're there with your mom and you're like, mom, I have no idea what they're doing. I, I wouldn't actually have any clue at all. That doesn't exist where it's not taboo. Um, and I mean, that, that teenage me would love that to be the case because I'm deeply <laughs> scarred from a number of experiences and mom, I have no idea what she's doing. Like I, I, I'm 38 years old and I can just say, Total Recall, Arnold Schwarzenegger, three boobs. That's all I'm saying. <laughs> That's what that film is known as for me. So, you know. But it's not just about um, the sexual censorship either, which is, I mean, we, we, we've talked about this on, on with the program before. Um, but this is also about censorship of ideas and ideologies uh, and everything else. There, there's, I'm actually going to risk reading a passage from this. Um, the, so Bradbury himself, there's a, there's a section where they're actually talking about the process of, of, of censoring. Um, and he says... Paragraphs here for you. Uh, you must understand that our civilization is so vast that we can't have our minorities upset and stirred. Ask yourself, what do we want in this country above all? People want to be happy, isn't that right? Haven't you heard it all your life? I want to be happy, people say. Well, aren't they? Don't we keep them moving? Don't we give them fun? That's all we live for, isn't it? For pleasure, for titillation. And you must admit our culture provides plenty of these. Yes, Montague Libri, what Mildred was saying in the doorway, he tried not to look at her mouth because then Beatty might turn and read what was there too. Colored people don't like little black Sambo. Burn it. White people don't feel good about Uncle Tom's cabin. Burn it. Someone's written a book on tobacco and cancer of the lungs. The cigarette people are weeping. Burn the book. Serenity, Montag. Peace, Montag. Take your fight outside. Better yet, into the incinerator. Funerals are unhappy and pagan. Eliminate them too. Five minutes after a person is dead, he's on his way to the big flu. The incinerator is serviced by helicopters all over the country. Ten minutes after a death, a man's a speck of black dust. Let's not quibble over individuals with memoriams. Forget them. Burn them all. Burn everything. Fire is bright and fire is clean. See, I don't see censorship as inherently a bad thing. That it exists. We all do it every day. We censor ourselves. We, we filter our worldview, we, we kind of select what we're into, what we like, what we don't like every single day, consciously and unconsciously. And a passage like that just can, uh, it kind of slams me in the face saying, 
would you rather be informed or happy? And it's that eternal debate that rages within me of going, uh, do I know too much to ever be settled and happy? Perhaps. Would it be better if I could just burn all this stuff away and just glide through life, as you say, in search of titillation in whatever kind of form that may be? It's, it's that eternal debate that I think censorship is something, it just, we all have it inherent in us. There's all stuff that we don't want to see. Even the most reprehensible pervert has something they don't want to see. I guess the question then really comes down to who it is that should actually make those decisions. I mean, I think about the likes of anything Trump says, does, or writes. I mean, particularly his writing, which I can't help but find myself being entertained by. He has a unique writing style. I will give him that. But there's this feeling that I just wish that there was an editor along lines who would just go, nope, that's not going through. Um, But then why should I have the right to say that he shouldn't be able to express himself in that way and, and as reg- reprehensible as much of it regardless is. of whether you censor it or not he's still saying the stuff it still exists it's still being put out and i suppose to move away from the printed word on on paper to the, the word on screen that we're now living in a world where it's harder and harder and harder to censor what what we see what we read mm. and uh, that was this is where this self-censorship idea comes in that you know you can block things on your twitter feed or your social media feed you can take them away so you don't see them does that mean they don't exist anymore no absolutely not and previously we would have lived in a world where the uh, the, the burning of religious texts of sacred texts yeah. may have eradicated an ideology that can't happen anymore at the moment anyway so i kind of wonder the, the censorship that it's almost censorship as a self-defense mechanism against the horror of the world well, we're also looking at it from a very you know western european ideology as well and it's uh, you know, if you go into another country, then the sensitive issues are, are, are much more prevalent. I mean, uh, yeah. you've a thought, Neil, I can tell. No, I, just what you said about censorship and keeping you from the horror of the world. Like, growing up here, like, there wasn't a news bulletin in the car that didn't get turned down by my parents. Do you know, like, when stuff was just going mental. Like, so, th- there is a bit, and, and the social media thing is so pressing now, too, where... You can turn all that stuff off and you can switch off certain terms, but then what I find is as depressing as it can be when you leave yourself open to all that stuff, your Twitter timeline becomes an echo chamber. Yeah. yeah. I mean, you're no longer informed. And then you become that world that they're talking about in the book. You're in the Fahrenheit 451 world where everybody's in this blissed out state in your Twitter timeline just going, isn't the world great and isn't this puppy cute and blah, 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 blah. Hmm. Look at my dog did yesterday. And That doesn't sound so bad. You well, know. I know, but it doesn't... It also leaves you... I, I think it leaves you in a state of numbness then because you can't possibly access a full range of feeling about injustice in the world and you can't... Because for, for, all the, for all the reasons I disagree with Trump, what I have to try and understand is why there's a whole load of people underneath in the comments section going, who's the best president we ever had? <laughs> you know, like I have to try and work that out and how that, and how then you can engage with those people and go, do you really think, like, can we, and not argue, which is very hard in a social media world, but to discuss the, the pros and cons of whatever the issue is. I mean, it, it comes down to um, that horrible insult that's being thrown around, people who don't want to hear hate speech against um, people with a lack of, of power, but um, the, the right to not be offended. Mm. And I don't think we have a right to not be offended. Um, I think 
being offended is actually really good for is that for a human debate. right then to be offended is actually the human right that we should be campaigning for well, i mean when what what montag's talking about there sounds alarmingly like the right to not be offended mm. the the right to police the terms of the debate so that nobody gets to feel bad about anything um what we i think we have a right to um in any sort of society is a right to live free from fear of persecution based on um, any of the key reasons why people have historically been persecuted in terms of you know religion uh, sexuality race all of uh, you know all of those but that's why we have laws against hate speech and I think it's entirely appropriate that we have laws about hate speech but I recognize that there's we are absolutely opening ourselves up uh, we are we are one sort of malign intent away from hate speech being you know, criticism of the government so we, well, we I mean, it is in America, it is. I mean, yeah, it's presidential that's, harassment. Yeah, that's it. And we rely on everybody playing to the same rules when we have laws mm. against hate speech. So this, uh, the, 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 the idea that, I mean, and that's part of, for me, the, the, the problem of self-censorship is that we do allow ourselves. And I wholeheartedly admit, I, I 100% curate my Twitter feed so that I don't have to read things that annoy me because, quite frankly, Twitter's bad enough on some days um, to get through without seeing people spewing bile but at the same time I have to make the conscious effort to go out and as you say Neil engage with with people whose views I don't agree with and sometimes people whose views I find abhorrent um, because it's it it is important to be offended and to Th those views exist they, they don't exist, they don't disappear exactly. if you yeah. if you don't if you cut them out of your your, your they're world, they're more dangerous they don't disappear. if you don't acknowledge them. Absolutely, yeah. absolutely. I mean, uh, like, on on a base level, uh, let, let's just even take the idea of going on your social media feed, whatever it might be, and avoiding spoilers of, of oh things. God. That's a form of self censorship. We don't want to yeah. see what's happening. We don't want to see what's happening in the world. And on, on a basic level, that's self preservation. You're you're. That's what all censorship is. Is a kind of preserving one's own view of life. As somebody who was a week behind on season eight of Game of Thrones, there's a special level of hell reserved for people who post spoilers immediately after it airs. I just have to throw this one out here uh, just to get it off my chest more than anything else, where um, I happened to be browsing on Reddit and it was a picture saying, hey, remember these things that were in uh, our, our lunch boxes as kids? And it was little sandwiches and certain kind of sweets and a list of everyone who perished in Avengers Endgame before I'd seen it. <laughs> And I've got to say, I was ripping about that censorship I could have dealt with. They're, I could, going, I they're, in, my, they're in that same special level of hell, don't worry. Ab that's, absolutely. Yeah. That's even worse. <laughs> the, to, to, to bring this back into the literary world, um, there, is, there is something, when you look at uh, Fahrenheit 451, I think you can't help but also think about 1984, Orwell's uh, dystopian future of, of where we are. And I'm not quite sure whereabouts it is we exist right now between the two, but I, I, there is something decidedly uncomfortable about the world in which we live and the level of monitoring that goes on, the level of, of echo chambering that goes on, uh, um, and, and censorship. And, and it's not just censorship, but actually, more than that, very, very controlled and uh, policed um, material. I kind of think, actually, the, the, the book I'd like to throw into the discussion was Huxley's um, Brave New World. Which, which was itself banned. Which was itself banned, of course. And, and, and it still is one of those books that... I, I read as a young person, and it's had such a profound effect upon me. Where you, you, if anyone has has not read the book, it's about a, it's a, 
it's a utopian dystopia where they've created the perfect society, but there's still that natural human element to rebel against that. And I think with Huxley's worldview, there's this lingering suspicion that this controlled, drug-fueled, deadened society is actually preferable to the world that we live in, that there's something about that is actually enjoyable and something that will that will help benefit our society. And I think if we look at the likes of um, Orwell's 1984 and then Fahrenheit 451, that th there's always this impression that this tightly controlled, censored world is a bad thing. With Huxley, it throws out that notion. As I say, it's something, it's an eternal kind of conflict within me of going, is it that bad to have your worldview limited, to not be exposed to the horrors of the world, to the stuff that you don't want to see, that we maybe shouldn't see? Is there a benefit to having your worldview restricted? And it all comes down to censorship. Ooh. I'm thinking about this one myself. Uh, do, I, do I wish to live in that, that little bubble of happiness? Without any... I, I, I think if you think about living somewhere like this, yeah. you know, uh, growing up whenever we did, um, and actually looking around, I would say most of us did, uh, you know, there was that point where you could actually get through the troubles without being aware of it. And even today, I mean, people are still very ignorant about what actually is going on in certain parts of Northern Ireland. Which is why then you get something like what happened in Derry a few weeks ago suddenly shocks people out of the system because they've been living in this little bubble, pretending everything's okay, having that sanitized, um, self-censored, uh, controlled view of, of our situation and fed all the lines about how it's great because it's like a saw time in it um, when it's not. Uh, so actually I think the damn where it has an impact and where I think it is powerful and possibly potentially quite useful is whenever as a society we have become so numb to reality that it then allows a simple event to shock us out of that and get us to think again. But the problem is, is that we're living in this kind of numbness for so long that we become effective sheep and uh, whilst it's nice to not have to worry, uh, we all like to do that. Um, it's a very false world we live in, and I don't want to live in that. To kind of play devil's advocate for a moment, because I want to stress, I'm not this kind of totalitarian fascist <laughs> dictator who wants freedom crushed into a, a, a sand. So is. I mean, if it happens, it happens, and I'm available for anyone who needs that. But um, <laughs> if you look at the, at the world that Bradbury paints and the world that Huxley paints and the world that Orwell paints, the one thing that's missing from all of these, uh, or the one thing that we tend not to think about or tend not to focus on, is that none of them are brought about out of malice. Yeah. That there is a sense of that, that by controlling the population, by limiting what we can do, by crushing us with that, as Orwell said, that boot coming down on the human face until the end of time, that they're doing it for our own good. And, and that, that's something yeah. I find it's hard to reconcile because I can well, see the strength in it. That, again, is, is why um, I find the present day so frightening um, because these, th these worlds are talking about societies that have evolved out of something seeming like a pretty good idea at the time. And people walk blindly and happily into this totalitarian future where thought is controlled. Um, and I just can, I mean, anybody seeing the horrifying resonances with today, um, you know, we, we had all of these people 50 years ago looking at the future going, well, I don't like the look of that. That looks a bit worrying. And we went, yeah, that looks really worrying. Let's Sign do me it up. anyway. Sign me up. Yeah. Um, and, and we did it thinking that we were doing a good thing and we did it thinking that we were making ourselves happier and we are doing it to make ourselves happier we're doing it so that we can live in our little echo chambers and be unoffended and unafraid and um 
we, it's, it's, it's now got to the point where the message is so controllable without even very much, without very much effort at all, as we keep seeing over and over again. Well, the, the problem is, is that somebody ultimately has to make the decisions and decide that, you know, what is and what isn't acceptable. And we, we default to somebody and we've got to trust that they're the right person to make that decision and who has the right to make that decision. So self-censorship is maybe the only way of doing it. Yeah, that for me is why when I say no to censorship, it's because, because all that stuff is happening. I think we have to try and read everything well, not everything, but like, you know, that's the impossible task. Clearly you've seen my unread <laughs> book pile. <laughs> you know, but you know what I mean? Like, try and take in bits from all along the spectrum. Because otherwise you do end up in that totalitarian state and thinking. And th all those dystopian futures that we read about and we watch, when you... Like, when I, when I sat and watched Fahrenheit 451 the other night, they were sitting... Um, Montag's wife is sitting kind of zombified in front of this big, massive, like, 50-inch screen, which when you watch that in 1964, you're going, Huge. Wow. That, that is a monster. <laughs> and, like, that is now the go-to in so many homes. Like, practically what would be what would, would have been considered back then the home cinema oh i've got one of my boudoir the book talks about walls yeah. and that was the biggest wall of mm. tv that they could conceive of in 1966 which i just find amazing well i think it's more about practicalities in 1966 well, yes of course but you know they they had some in well yeah okay. what i love is the fourth wall is missing um, you know, which is now something we're constantly trying to break, but there they don't even have it. What I love about all this, though, is that for every Montag and for every Winston Smith, th there, there is that person sitting watching the, 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 the telly screen or whatever, just going, this is great. I'm having <laughs> a great time. Everything's controlled. I've, I get to wear a uniform every day. I'm getting my food and pills, and I'm totally happy all the time. It's Isn't the Matrix. It great? It's, it's, yeah. metro it's Metropolis. Yeah. Well, it's, it's would, you, would you go into the Matrix or not into the Matrix? It's I mean, that bit I've got to bring it into the Matrix. I'm a Keanu fan. So. I'm, yeah. I'm staying in the Matrix. It's, <laughs> it's exactly. <that> the steak <laughs> tastes delicious, as yeah. the guy says. Yeah, it does Zion looks nasty to me. No, that's what I was going to say. It's that bit in the Matrix where he's sitting cutting the steak and he goes, I know this doesn't actually taste of anything, but I'm loving it. And that's censorship in a nutshell. That's yeah. really what it boils down to. Is you're creating the world that you want to be in because whether we like it or not, the world that we do live in is kind of horrible and outside of our control. So by, by censoring it, we're filtering it down to something we can manage. But then, it, it, I mean, to invoke Godwin's law, I think we have to with this one because it's very, very strongly hinted we at. We did in the very book. well. We did, we, well, we think we mentioned at the start. Um, but obviously, you know, there is the, 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 the real danger is, you know, we're in a, a, a day and age where the far right is on the, the, on the push. And we come back to Nazism and we come around to that and we come around to the mindless people who are simply doing the job and having met people who worked, you know, who were part of the Hitler Youth Movement who basically fell in line because life was simpler when you didn't ask questions. Um, and everything is being censored. And the, the film hints at it. What I, what I find bizarre about the film is actually one of the, the German actors, Anton Differing, is, is uh, given an English accent, <laughs> which, you know, is a perfectly good German actor and it would give it a little bit of resonance. Um, but... That is the risk. Too much resonance, probably. <laughs> oh. um, we what have I find bizarre is the Bambridge accent that suddenly appears in the middle of it, but anyway. Well, um, <laughs> so, does anybody else want to contribute or have any thoughts? You're more than welcome to. Let me, give me an indication. I'll come over and bring a mic. Everyone's getting very, very tired, very quiet. <laughs> I don't want to speak. What no. do you want to say? We're not censoring any opinions here today. Or are we? Mm, okay, I'm going to come in. 
I warned you guys. No, no, no. Well, I'd like to hear other people's thoughts on this, so I'm going to position myself somewhere around here. I can talk to three people at once. People who have got drinks up to their mouths are usually a good one to start with <laughs> because they're most obviously trying not to speak. Um, censorship. Should we? Should we not? I don't think we should. Um, again, it, it's that whole thing where if you... It's like, um, you know, the Bible, Adam and Eve, you're telling Eve not to eat the ab apple, but she's still going to eat the bloody apple. You know, I think everyone has their choice, and if they want to choose to watch a particular film or read a particular book, they'll do it no matter what. They'll find ways. So. The best thing you can do for two teenagers to try and get them, like Peter Rollins talks about this, chaperones. Nothing makes the idea of sex more appealing to two teenagers <laughs> at a formal than a chaperone to escape <laughs> and get away from get away from that prohibition to kind of it suddenly becomes an allure. Why is this person here to block this off? What is it about this thing that I can't have? And why is my mom here? <laughs> so, it, so basically, what you're saying is that the whole fear about censorship is that we make it attractive because we're saying no. Whereas if we just let everyone have a free for all, there's actually going to be nothing to worry about because people will just realise themselves that's not worth doing. I think when you have, like a prohibition, it does two things. It makes it more attractive and also it pushes stuff underground, mm. which is always a dangerous way to go, which is why you end up with like all that dark internet, 4chan, mad stuff. I don't know anything about that. Do you know, like that, <laughs> you know, that, that side of it that gets very dark very, very quick when it goes, when it goes underground like that. As a case study in 1989, when I was in primary school, a copy of Robocop on VHS <laughs> went round the class. <laughs> And when it came to my turn, everyone had seen it. When it came to my turn, the teacher found out about it. We were in primary five. And she said, look, this is an 18 film. You're not allowed to watch this. And she sat us down and was incredibly reasonable with us, you know, perhaps more reasonable than the teacher should have been at the time, explaining why watching a film like this would be wrong. As soon as she took it away uh, and put it back to the person who brought it in, I went over to them, got the copy of RoboCop. I've never wanted to see a film as much as I wanted to see RoboCop. And this is maybe the worst example because RoboCop was amazing. It lived up to every expectation I'd been given. It was forbidden to me and it was better than I thought it would be. But I mean, it was that temptation, as you're saying. It was, I was told, you can't have this. Therefore, it made it incredibly enticing to the point where I would have done anything to watch RoboCop, <laughs> rightly, I believe. But then also... Just on Robocop thanks as well. To my <laughs> thanks to my parents for letting me watch that at the age of eight or whatever I was. Who thought tonight would take up so much Robocop chat? But ITV More where that came from. And just in terms of censorship, ITV had this habit of showing uh, movies. You know exactly where I'm I going. I know what you're going to say. The censored versions. The censored the, the versions. Made for TV versions. Which in Robocop led to somebody being called a melon farmer. <laughs> melon farmer. Yeah. Mm. We, get we, you, we you actually have a farmer, podcast right? called Yippee-ki-yay, uh, Mr. Falcon. Yeah, <laughs> so like s censorship has always been a bit where like you could have watched Robocop at a certain time on TV and you would have thought that he was used some really <laughs> weird terminology, but he was a robot. So and I think that's what Ray Bradbury was writing about <laughs> in, in, in Anyways, 451. Yeah. I think that's the utopia he was aiming for. He had Robocop in mind at the time, I, th I think. Um, any thoughts? Not well, necessarily on Robocop. Fibre, yeah, anything. So I'm, I'm, we've got such a small group with you here tonight. It's nice to get you all involved. Um, well, what do you what do you think about um, just the 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 nature of censorship is to infantilize? 
So, I mean, that's why it's so objectionable, and that's the whole trope in Brave New World and in Fahrenheit 451 is that, you know, these adult populations have become infantilized and are being controlled by some distant, dystopian, authoritarian parent. But mostly what we've been talking about in real censorship is stuff that, like Robocop, applies to children and things that most of us probably would agree are perhaps not appropriate to just let children have a free-for-all access to without any supervision or intervention. Um, and self-censorship, which is not being controlled by any kind of intelligent authoritarian regime. It's just what we're willfully doing to ourselves to infantilize ourselves. So, yeah, I think you make a really good point um, in that it's the, the whole idea of, of um, protecting children is a huge part. And it's a huge part even of how UK obscenity laws came into effect. Um, UK was one of the first places in the world to affect an obscenity law. And it was geared towards protecting children and people who would be corrupted by stuff like Joyce and, and that sort of thing. Um, I'm, I'm the parent of quite a young child. He's almost two. Um, and what you say just really resonates and it really rings true to me because there are things that I don't want him to watch. But I think for me, there's a difference between um, controlling the information flow and controlling ideas. Um, for my son, he's just about verbal now. Um, and if he asks a question, it doesn't matter what he's talking about. I'm going to give him as honest an answer as I can possibly give him. There's nothing is off, off the table in terms of discussion. But I'm curating that flow of ideas in a certain way because I want those flow of ideas to flow from us as his parents um, and to reflect our worldviews and our values. So when you take that, you, you sort of, by, by letting him watch um, material which has been uh, classified for older audiences, you're allowing somebody else's worldview and somebody else's curation of ideas to flow into the child. So uh, for me, there's a difference there between taking ideas off the table um, and taking representations of ideas off the table. And I'm aware that's a real, that's, that's semantic tap dancing. I am totally aware <laughs> of that. But I think if you're a parent, you do semantic tap dancing 800 times an hour. So <laughs> I have no regrets. <laughs> but it's that eternal kind of debate though, isn't it? That um, as a parent, you want to, to censor uh, the, 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 the materials available to your child. But you wouldn't be able to censor that material if you hadn't encountered it yourself. Yeah. So I talk about myself seeing Robocop at the age of nine or whatever it was. That if I hadn't seen that at the age of nine, I wouldn't know that that kind of stuff was maybe what I shouldn't have been watching at that age. And if I had a child myself going, well, actually, I wouldn't want Junior watching Robocop at the age of five or whatever. Um, it's, it's that uh, kind of d difficult decision, that kind of dichotomy within you that in order to understand this stuff, you've got to be exposed to it in some level. Or you've got to be prepared to, to, to exist in a world where you could have the, the, have the potential potential of being exposed to it. So I, I, I love this idea that it is a kind of parental thing. It is literally big brother, big father coming down saying, you're not allowed to do this. Well, how does he know? Because he's seen it, you know, and that's that's the kind of problem. And that's why I think that I believe that self-censorship is a, a, a something, it's a de defense mechanism that we all have. But how do you do it unless you've experienced it? You know, it's a tricky one. I mean, uh, to give an awful example, I, I once found myself in a situation where I was on 
unfortunately on live radio having this conversation where I find myself maneuvered into saying something that I absolutely didn't mean to, where um, the video for Wrecking Ball by Miley Cyrus had just been come out. And if anyone remembers that one, it's pretty suggestive she's in her pants or whatever, licking a wrecking ball. And the conversation on, on our one of our flagship news programs was, you know, is this pornography? Should our children be exposed to this? Is this disgusting? And I find myself saying that as a kid, I saw far more suggestive stuff than that on MTV when I was growing up in the 80s and 90s, and it didn't do me any harm. So if anything, you should let your kids watch this. In fact, if anything, make your kids watch Miley Cyrus licking a wrecking ball, because it'll give them such a healthy view on sexuality like I've got. And as soon as the words came out of my mouth, I find myself going, what are you saying? Why are you saying this? But I did. So it's that kind of thing where... I, I, I want people to be protected from images that will horrify them, that will scar them. And I think scarring is what I'm kind of getting at, things that are traumatic that never heal. But at the same time, someone's got to see that stuff because it is out there. So who do you trust? Who is that father figure? Who is that authority figure? You don't get asked to babysit very often, do you, Stephen? <laughs> uh, literally never. Hey, you want to watch Robocop and then we'll watch Miley Cyrus videos all night? It's the, it's the 12A conundrum. One of, one of the questions I got asked a lot by parents in kind of church world is this film's a 12a can i take my 10 year old to see it to which i say i don't know because i i compared it to, to some parents with like going for a curry with them <laughs> because <laughs> when you go when you go for a curry with somebody your tolerance is different to the spice the hate whatever so if i'm eating a madras or something and you say to me is that spicy? I can't tell you that because your, your tolerance is maybe different to mine. So I never told any parent to take or not to take a child to a 12A film because the only person that knows the child that well in terms of what they can handle and what they can't is the parent. So yeah, the 12A conundrum Ooh. and curry. You get asked to babysit a lot, don't you? No. Feeding the kids <laughs> really <laughs> hot curries and stuff. <laughs> <laughs> Have a madras, hot know. curries, and work them up to 15. I'm pretty much a korma <laughs> kind of guy. <laughs> um, you guys want... No, oh, definitely no. Don't come near me. Uh, hello. <laughs> um, so throughout history, we've got the obvious censorship of uh, book burnings by the Nazis being the obvious one. Um, um, my background, I'm Chinese, so I'm very aware of um, what happened during the Cultural Revolution and also uh, around 213 BC. Uh, basically, a lot of texts and the scholars that wrote them were destroyed. So they, they killed the scholars as well as the texts. But we're now moving into a world that's advanced digitally. Um, you can almost pretty much get anything online. Um, so I suppose my question is, do you think acts like burning a book will become less controversial or more just because we're now able to get so much information online? Like if, if Bradbury were writing Fahrenheit 451 now, it would be a completely different story, an absolutely profoundly different story, not just because of the technology, but the, actually the ideas within it, that if there were a transgressive idea that were out there, if it's online, you, you can't just burn it off the face of the earth. People can still access it. Even when you forbid access to it, you can still get access to it. So I think you're, you're absolutely right that the idea of, of, of a book burning may become kind of quaint. 
Uh, there's still a symbolic power to it, I think, at this point. But um, as we enter into an, uh, an age where everything's going to be online, our, uh, everything's accessible all the time, that uh, the idea of censorship becomes almost a moot point because if you want something, you can get it. However, um, just, just as you're saying that, it occurs to me that... Um, the internet is, it, yes, you're absolutely right. Once you put something on the internet, it's there forever as um, terrifyingly um, sort of exemplified by all these people who have made one stupid mistake on Twitter and have lost their jobs, their homes, their families. Um, however, it is vulnerable in the sense that that information flow can be shut off with sufficient sort of will to do it and, and insufficient protest. Um, whereas a book is less controllable in that sense. Um, books, once they are eradicated, it's, it's harder. You can't pinpoint a book digitally. You can pinpoint uh, an, I, an IP address. You can pinpoint um, a computer's location. You can, you can, God, you can track what people are looking at. They can track keystrokes. But a book, as in Bradbury's novel, a book can be hidden, a book can be secreted, a book can go into somebody's head um, and, and remain there in a way that the internet has that, that vulnerability to digital control. You know, it's, it's given me a, a, an additional kind of thought to that, that it's stuff that doesn't make it onto the internet, that's, that's a different kind of censorship yeah. that's happening. So just as a music fan, there are, there are records that I absolutely love that you're not going to find them on your streaming platform of choice. You're not going to be able to buy them. You're not going to be able to find them at all. And they're ceasing to exist. The physical copies are disappearing because people like me are holding on to them and not want to part with them. So we are entering an era where there's a different kind of censorship that's happening where if stuff's not being put online, it's actually kind of stopping. It's, it's ceasing to exist. I, ooh, there's a couple of things I want to pick out of that one. Um, I guess as a collector, I'm well aware that I have stuff that other people don't have, but I'm quite happy for that, <laughs> to be honest. That's the joy of being a collector. Yeah, it's like, you, know, you offer me money for it, you're still not getting that. That's fine. Um, and I mean, certainly that comes with films, it comes with paper ephemera, it comes with everything. Um, so that is an interesting point. I mean, putting it online doesn't necessarily, also doesn't necessarily last forever because I've been doing some research on some people who have been gradually removing their online traces. Not quick enough for me, thankfully. Um, but yes, so, so I don't know, it's a weird thing, but I, I'm glad you brought up the, the stuff about what's happening in China because apart from anything else, you sent me a whole bunch of links that I have tried to get through. <laughs> um, so it is this weird situation where, you know, you've got people who, you know, the Chinese government is, can literally censor the stuff that their population can read online, which is, you know, governmental saying, uh, you know, we're not going to have any criticism of our country. There's also a situation where there are people who are responsible. Um, there was an example in Hong Kong, which I thought was a fascinating case where there were, was it three gentlemen who had set up a library of stuff? A bookshop, and they were kidnapped and suspectedly bumped off. Hold on, let me get the microphone down to you so we can record this for the podcast so I'm accurate. I always like someone who knows what they're talking about. There you go. Uh, I know this because I was looking for the English version of the book, but I couldn't find it. Um, so basically, it was sort of like a tabloidy book that um, was written about the premier of China and it was about his lovers and nowhere else would stock it bar this bookshop and then suddenly uh, 
about three, yeah, one one guy was in Thailand and he suddenly disappeared and then ended up in mainland China. The owner ended up in mainland China and then another one ended up in mainland China as well. So, yeah, it, it's that sort of, it's a very scary situation at the moment in Hong Kong since it's been um, returned now from the British to um, China at the moment. Um, I remember years ago, a friend, I, I had a friend who... Uh, was a Chinese student and she was staying over and uh, the Vinci code came out and she I read it and I was, uh, it was okay and she said she said to me oh um you've got the da Vinci code and I said yes and she said can you tell me what the ending's like because apparently they've censored our version so yeah of all the things to censor as well yeah. It is fascinating. I mean, so the censorship does exist and people are still making decisions and it can change from country to country. And here's the other thing, Robert, as well, just when we're on that subject, is that, you know, Google's indexing algorithms, um, if you, the, the research suggests if you're past the second page, you're invisible. So if you have a dissenting opinion on something and um, you don't get the hits or whatever arcane alchemy Google's indexing algorithms employ in order to get you onto... You're, you know, that, that, that doesn't exist. So while it exists, while it's out there, the chances of it being seen are being controlled by a corporation, which they're not subject. I mean, the, you know, the, the US has First Amendment protections for free speech. Google's not subject to that. Um, Google has an enormous amount of power that's not subject to any of those protections that, that free speech sort of entails. Same with Twitter, same with Facebook. Um, you know, we... What what happens on there is is in, at the behest of a corporation, mm. um, and I mean anybody want to trust a corporation's motives to be entirely benign? I like that they tell me how quickly it gets me from A to B. To be honest, based on how how they're tracking my every move, um, yeah. Now we're going to get to that part of the evening. I think where we're going to consign some literature to the fires. Burning, my favorite bit. It's <laughs> what you're here for, isn't it? <laughs> Um, out of curiosity, did anybody... What's that? Photographers, come. You want us to keep on talking? Until then, that's fine. We're going we're gonna to have more talky bit before we burn. Don't worry. Uh, did anyone bring a book to burn tonight? You did? Ah, excellent. So, what we're going to do is we're going to run through everybody's choices. Yeah. We're going to work out why you're, you're going to burn that thing. Um, that's a protest against the book burning, <laughs> oh I'm no. sure. We knew it was going to happen. Fame at last. It's quite good. Ew. They're <laughs> <laughs> going back on you, Neil. Um, yeah, so what we're going to do, uh, we let us know what it is that you want to consign to the flames and for why. And I think, just the w you guys haven't got books with you? No, no, okay. I'm going to ask you first. I was going to do us first and then ask you, but I think I'm going to ask you what you... I think that's mean. I know, but it's <laughs> my show. I get to do this. I think that's mean. I'm standing up for you. I think he's a meanie person. No, 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 but I'm curious. So... See, we all have preconceived notions and we've all been briefed. So that's the difference. What have you got for us? <laughs> You've got Jesus Christ. Excellent. We said no sacred text. No sacred text. <laughs> so we, we're not going to burn any Bibles or Korans yeah. because we'll probably get in a lot more trouble even though there's not that many people here to tell. So what have you got? Let's keep it secret, you know. <laughs> tell us, w tell us what, you're, what you're choosing to burn and for why. Um, I, I was going through a phase of um, online dating and all that kind of crap <laughs> and um in a way when you buy self-help books and stuff like that and you sort of read two pages and give up because you 
just lose the will to live. Um, and then I, I thought, uh, this was sort of like, I, I assume like an updated version of Men Are From Mars, Women Are From Venus, but it's called Act Like a Lady, Think Like a Man. And I've read about one page and no, it had really good reviews on Amazon. And I was really excited. And thought, oh, this will be, this will get me into the inside of a male psyche. And sadly, no, so I'm going to burn it. Oh my God, can we, can we sort of meet up afterwards and compare notes of all the crap self-help books that yeah, we yeah, bought? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yes. I've, I've got a couple. <laughs> of I, have a, I have a shelf full of them at home that I can't, I don't want to give away to anybody. I just yeah. don't want to inflict them on anyone else. Be- because you have this assumption that you'll go back and you'll find some miracle that'll like, help why, you. Why am I broken? Fix me. Yeah. Yeah. No, it's rubbish. <laughs> it's absolute rubbish. I spent such a lot of money on those things. I wish I'd thought of doing that. So, so we're basically burning your book because... You didn't get a date out of it. Yeah. <laughs> oh, no, I'm not, I'm not that fickle. Come on. <laughs> it just it got really, really boring. Can we and hear a little bit of like it? Is there anything like underlined right, or anything? Know, like chapter, <laughs> chapter 19. Let's do it. It's time to put a ring on it. A 10-step test before your trip to the jeweler. It is very American. No, High no, insightful. No offense, I think American. that's you know it, tremendous. Um, it's just really... <laughs> who, who wrote this lovely uh, uh, piece of work? There's another chapter, When the Cookie Crumbles. Wow. I think it's, it's Steve Harvey is the writer, yeah. I believe. Steve Harvey. I know I this because I was chatting that. beforehand. <laughs> yeah. It's not that book that I'm a regular <laughs> reader of. It's got Although it worked miracles for me. There's, there's even a section where you do lists. Um, you know, uh, month one checklist. What are his top five favorite things? God Robocop. Robocop. Oh <laughs> 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 What's the title of the book again? like a lady think like a man I'm looking forward to the uh, the reviews on Amazon act like a lady think like a man one oh. star I burned it yeah. <laughs> um, yeah, didn't yeah, work yes. very disappointed would like to return I forgot the bottom line says what men really think about love relationships intimacy and commitment <laughs> and also it's the expanded edition great it's choice also not, it's also well, not for that money. big which would indicate yeah, that yeah. we don't think an awful lot. That was in the unexpanded edition. <laughs> <laughs> it's a leaflet. <laughs> pamphlet. It's, you know, it's, that's all you need to kind of get. Uh, the, the key points. Yeah, so it'll be, yeah, burning hell. <laughs> Excellent. There we are. Act like a lady, think like a man. The expanded. Oh, are you going to be burning something, madam? And I'm going to say this to you about self-help books. Do you not realize the fact that you realize they're all crap? You've learned something from self-help books. <laughs> That's a really yeah. good point. Yeah, yes, well, it cost me a lot that. of money to realize that, though. <laughs> and I've got a heaving shelf full of and them. The and other, the other point I'm going to make is I am actually, in principle, um, cannot agree with burning books because I'm afraid that Amazon is going to eventually decide what books we get to read because yeah. we don't buy paper anymore. That's my biggest concern. Well, that's kind of what, what I mean when I talk about sort of the indexing algorithms and, and leaving sort of free speech in the hand of corporations. Um, it's, it is a bit scary. I mean, as, as an author, I share your concerns. You've got to be there. Yeah. I, I have a friend who owns a, a Christian bookshop in East Belfast and I I go to him regularly to get stuff that I want to read and a book that I bought recently from him I bought for $9.99 I can buy that book online for $5.68 from like wording but then if I do that then he's not there anymore and that part ironically I went and bought a book in a supermarket tonight to kind of make this point about bookshops 
in a weird way. Um, can I talk about what I'm going to burn? Yes, please. Right. Okay. So Neil, Neil would like to volunteer. I went. Yes, madam. If you were here for the start of the evening, uh, we're all going to be burning books. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So we're also but recording this for a podcast. So if you just let us kind of do this uh, on the microphone, because if you start off microphone, we don't pick you up, and it just it's just slightly awkward. So I spent uh, four pounds tonight in ASDA, um, and I bought because my other plan supermarkets was are we available. other supermarkets <laughs> are available. Um, in in my workplace at my nine to five, we have a lending library where if when you finish a book, leave it on the shelf, somebody will pick it up and take it. There has been a damn brown book that has sat there forever. <laughs> it it was going to be the book that I picked up to to come and burn tonight because there was a point in my life where I was on a train and everybody was reading the Da Vinci Code, and I fell into the trap of why is everybody reading this? So I bought the book and then I went. Why is everybody reading this? It's terrible. So I was going to burn Dan Brown, but I forgot to lift the book. So I, I quite like it. I went to Asda. Um, we'll have a fight about this afterwards. And it's a page turner. I spent four pounds because part, part of the, the, the reason I'm talking about my friend's bookshop and bookshops in general is because as much as Amazon contributes to it, I think supermarkets do as well. This cost me four quid, right? Now, this is uh, The Mister uh, by E.L. James, the author of Fifty Shades of Grey. And the books that you get in a supermarket, and it's not to demean anybody who picks anything up in the supermarket, that's not what I'm saying, but they are very, um, the range that you have available to you is very mediocre, is almost censored to a certain type of author and a certain type of book that you can pick up, particularly in terms of fiction. Um, and yet, so London 2019, life has been easy for Maxim Trevelyan with his good looks, Ooh. aristocratic connections and money, he's never had to work and he's rarely slept alone. What, what a, a hero. character. Um, I like him. So that's why, that's why this is going Have you read it? In the fire. No, I literally uh, bought it here. You bought it to burn without yeah. having read it. I, yeah, I feel e. like you're James, being slightly unfair on this book, Neil. Definitely. It might be a literary masterpiece. Um, and also, I've, I've brought my own little notebook um, because part of what I used to do in writing and stuff, um, I just want to commit to the fire and, and step out from behind... Um, a pre-existing logo to to be me and to just do that and um, yeah so that's the kind of sacrificial funeralistic bit of that I, I've been impressed since you told me you're going to do that I am going to find watching you put that into the fire very emotional I'm slightly worried that I might shed a wee tear for it to be <coughs> honest but uh, it sometimes are, are we talking about the notebook or the E.L. James book no, no, the, the, the <laughs> I just want to make sure the, I want to make notebook, clarify sure that notebook. Um, sometimes I think you come to a point where you realize that things have to go and in the sense of being able to put something in the fire and watch it go um, there'll be there'll be a bit of a a bit of a catharsis in that and I, I did say to somebody recently like may the fires that we burn light the way to something new and may the fires that we've burnt show us how far we've come which is kind of what I'm doing with a notebook. So there you go. I think that's amazing. Uh, I just want to jump in with a little comment from John at Belfast Books, uh, who <laughs> can't make it tonight, but he said he'd like me to make the point for him that it's manuscripts that haven't been edited that need to be burned, <laughs> not books. <laughs> so that's kind of what you're doing, really. Yeah. Burning yeah, a yeah. manuscript. Yeah. Rachel. Yes. So I have 
sort of thoughts about this. Um, I mean, I, I'm an author. I, I write science fiction, and I have published a novel in science fiction. So I have thoughts about burning people's work and using that as a commentary on, on artistic quality, which is really not what I wanted to do at all. I considered burning my own book because I thought that I feel I have the right to do um, because it's it's mine, it's work that I created. But in the end, that felt a bit self-aggrandizing. So the book I've chosen to, to bring tonight, um, on reflection, is actually not the wisest choice. Nothing to do with the fact that it's one of the top 10 most challenged stroke censored books in America, uh, according to the American Libraries Association, which only occurred to me after the fact, which was a bit of a, you know, although I think that's a good, that's a good conversation to have and the reasons why it's been challenged and the reasons why people are pulling this from school curriculums um, and, you know, whether people have the right to, to say children shouldn't be reading this for whatever reason. But anyway, I think that's, that's part of the conversation to have tonight. But for me, the reason I want to cast it into the flames is out of love. Um, I mean, this book emotionally devastated me. Um, and it, it threw me into such an emotional tailspin. Um, I've just, I've, books rarely affect me to that degree. Um, and for me, putting it into the flames is part of the catharsis. It's part of a letting go of that feeling that it, it gave me, which was an amazingly powerful feeling. Um, and it's almost an act of reverence for me. It's about saying, I want to let go of the, the way you turned me inside out. So I'm letting go of this book. So yeah, that's, that's my reasons for wanting to burn it. It's The Kite Runner uh, by uh, Khaled Hosseini. If you haven't read it, do yourself a favor. It's, it's, yeah, I mean, I can see where the challenges come in, but it's well worth reading. It's a fantastic book. Just don't pick up the copy that you're throwing into the fire. No, don't do that. Take I mean, your hand yeah. out of the fire if you <laughs> want to read it. <laughs> Stephen. Um, I'm going to be pretty to the point here. I'm going to burn um, a book called Fifty Shades of Grey by E.L. James. <laughs> She's getting a good running tonight. But I want to make it perfectly clear. I'm not High five. <laughs> I am not burning this book because of what's in it. I have no real opinion on what's in it. Um, Is it uh, what it left out? <laughs> that's, that's the real saucy bits. Um, through my work in the BBC, I have presented programmes about reading, about books, and something that, that is a real kind of cornerstone of what I believe is that whatever you read, read it and enjoy it. It really doesn't matter what it is, as long as you enjoy it and get some sense of enrichment from it. That's the important thing. This is a book that has opened the door to reading for so many people. So I want to say I'm not burning Fifty Shades of Grey. I'm burning this copy of Fifty Shades <laughs> of Grey, which I believe to be haunted. Uh, my, my wife manages a bookshop and was, uh, she had to pick up this book because it, at the time it was the biggest thing in publishing. Everyone wanted to know about Fifty Shades of Grey. And she was encouraged to read the book. So the customers came in and asked, well, what's the book about? What kind of thing would I, if I've read Fifty Shades, what else could I read? So she, she brought it home and she tried to read it, but she didn't enjoy it. And some drink was taken and the book was thrown away in the house. When we moved house, the book was found underneath the sofa. We thought that was the end of the story. We moved house, there it was again. We thought we'd thrown it out, but it came back. Then we moved house again, and it appeared in my bookshelf. I don't know how it got there, because it was thrown out. But it's the same copy with the same sticker. So, in the name of all that's holy, 
I'm burning Fifty Shades of Grey, the cursed copy. As an exorcism? The, the, exactly. I mean, I want whenever we burn this stand well backed for whatever demons come out of this book, they're not going to be pretty. So I, I was once out with my kids at a, at a play cafe, like soft play bit, and there was like three different mums dotted around the room reading Fifty Shades. And it was the most like brilliant and also like weird and really creepy moment in a p- in those surroundings to see those mums just and like you say just taking the time to be able yeah. to sit and read while the kids it, are it off running. It run kicked right. the door open for so many people yeah. who would never pick up a book, but not this copy. It closes <laughs> doors. It comes into your. It opens your own door opens at night portals. and creeps up behind you. So mm-hmm. we, we're going to do a follow up on this in about two months' time to see where the <laughs> book has turned up. <laughs> It'll be behind my bed or something, you know? <laughs> Stephen's haunted Under my pillow. You tried to burn me, Stephen. Why did you do that, <laughs> Stephen? <laughs> so, um, uh, I w- we're going to cast a copy of Fahrenheit 451 into the flames as well. Uh, Ray Bradbury doesn't need the money anymore. Uh, he has already been cast into the flames himself. Uh, but yes, yeah, so it's going to go on there as a symbolic gesture into the book. I think what's more appropriate than a book about burning of books than to actually burn the book that's about the burning of books. It's what he would want. I think so. I think he'd appreciate it. Um, I, I kind of hummed and hawed about this one. So I was very tempted to burn my second copy of the Kenneth Williams diaries, which I'm still quite tempted to do because I think there's something about the act of writing diaries that is a private nature. We were talking about this earlier on, uh, about diaries being read by people that shouldn't be. Um, And whilst I think Kenneth does write with half an eye to them being published at some point, he's also quite loose and quite frivolous and, and quite honest in a way that has meant that this in itself has been quite heavily censored because the publisher would get sued for outing all Kenneth's friends. Um, but it is a fascinating book, and I keep, uh, I'm sort of torn because part of me just wants to give it to somebody else to find the joy of that life that he lived um, and all the brilliance in amongst all the sadness and the sorrow. And it was a, the, I, I love reading that, and I picked it up again so I could read it more places. So I think what I'm probably going to do, I'm going to be self-aggrandizing. I'm going to burn a book that I was involved with. So this is it here, The Lost Liner by Robert Crummy, who was a Victorian novelist um, from Cloch, in County Down, and ended up living in South Parade in, in Belfast. And uh, Robert Ristey wrote this book uh, about a ship that is n- not 100 miles away from the uh, RMS Titanic. Um, and he wrote this about oh, 10, 15 years before the Titanic went down. It's the lesser known of two books that really uh, sort of presaged the Titanic disaster. The better one is the uh, Montague... Uh, oh, gosh, what's the one? It's a Titan. The Wreck of the Titan. I love that. You're putting the boot into there. You're about to burn his book, and you're even saying it's not the best book on the <laughs> subject. No, it was, it's not the best known. Um, so this was a book that hadn't been published for... hadn't actually been seen for about 100 years, and a friend of mine managed to track down a copy. And when I set up my little independent publishing company, this was the first book that we published. So there's a lot of me has gone into this book, a lot of time, a lot of love, um, a lot of money, to be fair, <laughs> went into producing this. Um, but it also came in a part in my life where I was going through a really weird transition um my personal life was hell and it's i've never been able to enjoy it properly because it came at the same time as everything else but i think because because i've been involved with it because i sort of rediscovered it i think it's fitting that i put this one back into the fire i'm keeping my original copy of it though i mean i have got i've got a original 1880s version of it which is still sitting on my shelf at home that's not going in the fire because that took me ages to find but this one's going in uh, and that's why because um, it's something to do with me, but I think that's important. I think that, that to to actually part with something from myself that I was involved with as a as a process of catharsis. 
So that's going in there. Well, to, to quote the late great Rocky Erickson, burn the flames, burn. Let's get on with a book burning here. So uh, I'm going to just check. Are we good to set fire to stuff? You, uh, yes. There's talk about photographs and stuff. Just making sure you're okay. Yeah. He's taking pictures. Um, so what we'll do, uh, before we put each of the book in, I want to make sure we get a photograph of it over there by the fire. And if you're happy, we'll get a photograph of you with your book as well. We're going to put it on our website and we're explaining to people. No? Well, we'll can we take a photograph you have of your book? to. Come on. You're burning oh, your book. Well, let's take a photograph. We're going to take a photograph of your book as it goes in anyway. Um, and we're, we, we will all make sure we get photographs for ourselves with our books before we go in. Yeah. Uh, it'll go up on our website. We're hoping... All being well, I'm hoping at some point that we can run this conversation again um, and try and encourage other people to get involved in because I think there's a big debate about what is and what isn't acceptable. Um, and the very act of book burning itself is something that I think that we all instinctively shy away from because of its historical associations. But I think there's also a process in this that, that's quite healthy under the circumstances. I know Madam doesn't agree at all, but... <laughs> We talked about it before you came here. You can listen to the podcast. You'll, you'll catch up on it. Don't worry. I think we've all, we're all doing it for kind of... There is a lot of emotional connection and yeah. a haunted book. So I think... <laughs> I think we're I'm doing it for everybody's benefit. Know, yeah, Who knows exactly. where this thing's going to turn up? It might be in your house. We'll do a prayer. <laughs> I don't think there's anything... Um, while, while the act itself may be seen as slightly controversial for me... What what we are doing as a group mm. doesn't have any controversy. It has more of a more of an em emotional um, attachment, a, a cleansing, and an, and an exorcism. So well, <laughs> I mean, let's see what happens when we do this with VHS tapes. <laughs> <laughs> Nobody bats an eyelid. Um, yes, I'm I'm slightly worried about your the exorcism we're about to perform. I'm not trained. So am I. I'm I'm going to be standing well back. Does it go first or last? I, I, I don't know what way to do this now. Oh, I think Bradbury goes first. Yes, absolutely. Um, I think at this point we're going to end the podcast recording. So uh, it, is, uh, it would be remiss of me not to thank the uh, Belfast Book Festival for facilitating this tonight and for the lovely uh, environs of Babel here at the top of the Bullet Hotel in Belfast. It's quite fancy and yeah. somehow we didn't get pissed on. Uh, <laughs> or attacked by a seagull. Yes, although we still have an exorcism to come. That's true. <laughs> um, so yes, so thank you very much for all those and for all the, the crew of the Book Festival and Crescent Arts for helping out tonight and for Bullet as well. Um, a big thank you also to uh, my colleagues, Neil Swedgip. Neil. Who? I want to do this again. <laughs> to my colleague, Neil Sedgwick. Thanks, Matt. <laughs> <laughs> the newbie, Stephen Rainey. Thanks for having me. And uh, Dr. Rachel Kelly. Always a pleasure, especially when you call me doctor. <laughs> I think it's in the contract at this point, isn't it? It basically is, yeah. Nobody calls me doctor but him. It's great. Um, yeah, and, and I'm Robert J. E. Simpson. Uh, thank you very much for those of you who have come out. For any of your friends who missed out, you can tell them they missed out a really great show and the exorcism was the best bit. <laughs> Regardless of what happens in the next 10 minutes. <laughs> it might be anticlimactic, I'm just saying that. But the fade to black, sounds of screaming are heard. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, we're now going to go over towards the burner over there. Um, slightly inspired by Truffaut's version of Fahrenheit 451. And we're going to cast some stuff into the fiery flames. So uh, yes, looking forward to this bit. Burn All Books was recorded at Bullet Belfast as part of the Belfast Book Festival on the 12th of June 2019. The book burning part of the evening, along with additional information, is available to view via our website. 
If you'd like to share your thoughts on this or any of our other work, please get in touch. You can subscribe to the podcast via all good podcast distributors. And if you enjoy, please leave a review. We're on Twitter and Facebook as CinePunked, on Instagram as CinePunktFilm, and our website is at CinePunked.com. Thanks for listening. <laughs>